Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well, but you know, sometimes I wish we were in the good news business for a change. <laughs> yes, maybe one day on the sunny horizon there will be good news, but not so much this week. As we record this week's podcast, it's New Year in Cambodia, Laos and Myanmar. Not such a happy one, of course. The celebrations have been muted, especially in Myanmar, where the awful bloodshed at the hands of the military continues without letter. I'll be looking at Cambodia, where the new year has coincided with a worrying rise in COVID-19 infections. I'll speak with RFA Khmer's Buti Hoa about that situation and the repressive measures that Prime Minister Hun Sen's government has been taking in the name of preventing the spread of COVID. Dozens of people have been arrested for violating these COVID rules of Cambodia. But first we turn to Paul, who is focusing on China and its efforts to intimidate exiles from the Uyghur community, which has hit close to home for RFA. It's a completely baseless accusation and it's outrageous. My only crime is being a journalist reporting on what's happening to the Uyghurs. This month it emerged that RFA Uyghur service reporter Gochera Hoja was named by authorities in her home region of Xinjiang as being targeted by police on suspicion of joining an unnamed terrorist organization. The list was from May 2017, but it was news to Gulchera, known to RFA colleagues as Guli and admired for breaking stories on China's mass incarceration of Uyghurs and other Turkic-speaking Muslims in internment camps. She was also smeared at the same Xinjiang news conference last week as one of those who committed perjury through making false claims about their relatives being held in internment camps in the hopes of securing the sympathy of the international community and realizing their untold goals. Now, China is notorious for Orwellian doublespeak and for castigating its critics in harsh language. Beijing's threats are not idle, however, when it comes to the Uyghurs. Gu Li alone has verified that her father, mother, and brother are among 25 members of her extended family that have been detained, although eight have been released after serving time. And she is just one of eight other RFA Uyghur service reporters whose relatives have been confirmed to be held in camps or jail in the XUAR, Xinjiang. More than 50 people overall. To learn more about the problems of RFA Uyghur staff who have had relatives jailed to try to stop the reporting, today Eyes on Asia is talking with Rohit Mahajan, Vice President for Communications and External Relations, and a former journalist. Rohit has been in the thick of efforts to support RFA reporters who get in trouble for the reporting in Xinjiang, but also in authoritarian countries in Southeast Asia. Thank you for making time for us today, Rohit. Thanks for having me, Paul. I'm glad to be a guest on Eyes on Asia. Thanks. In your 12 years working at RFA, when was the first time that you encountered these policies of China towards our Uyghur service reporters? First, I have to say, has it really been 12 years? During that time, you know, what has loomed very large is the threat that is very real to our reporters in the Uyghur region, you know, with our Uyghur staff who've done incredible work, but has have nonetheless faced the, the wrath and repercussions of that, but also in Southeast Asia, where we've also had quite quite some issues uh, with journalists who have been arrested, detained, and uh, facing charges. So what was the reaction when uh, this sort of thing happened as part of your job? Well, initially, RFA has always veered towards caution, um, and for good reason. 
often in, in places where we were seeing declining press freedom, say in um, Cambodia, uh, it was routine for our reporters and journalists to face summons, to be called in by authorities. And most of the time, it would be kind of a cat and mouse game of some intimidation and routine intimidation, which is not excusable or not you know, ideal. But uh, if we had made a big fuss about it or had gone public, it could have veered towards that direction. And, and, and it would be more likely that people would get entrenched in that that persecution or that effort to make an example of RFA. So in the beginning, you know, we were often trying to veer towards dealing with this in, in, in a kind of quieter way and negotiating and dip diplomatically. Uh, we always try to inform, though, Congress. We always try to inform the State Department, and of course, the USAGM um, and others about these situations. So if there's any effort and any help that they can give, even behind the scenes, uh, we welcome that. But then when, you know, we had the case of our Uyghur journalists, particularly it was Shahret Hushur. Uh, back in 2014, I first learned that his brothers were being detained. In 2015, we worked more closely with other press freedom groups, CPJ, and Shahret, with his blessing, said that, you know, this is time to make this public. And that might put more pressure on the whole situation in a favorable way. Of course, there's always, I think, sometimes reporters who have their families targeted feel that things can't get worse. And that's always a reality. Things can get worse. As we're seeing with Gulchera Hoja, we thought the situation was improving for her because her family, which had been detained several years ago, seemed to be less um, harassed, I should say. But then last week's development certainly shows the propensity and um, long game that China's playing in terms of trying to silence journalists like Radio Free Asia's amongst other critics. Indeed. Uh, what have been the reactions from the government of the United States to your efforts to raise the profile of the issue? And if there were any reactions from China, what were they like? You know, when we go to, say, like, you know, Congress, when we go to the State Department, everybody is, is incredibly supportive and tries to be very helpful, especially with the case of our Uyghur journalists who are being targeted most of whom are based here in the United States, um, who live in the Beltway, but they have family in the, the Uyghur region in China who are then targeted, harassed because of their connection with RFA and because often because of their work directly. I mean, certainly the case with Shahet has been kind of a rainmaker for the, the service in breaking stories on the ground through this kind of incredible system of telephone journalism, and we can talk about that later. Gulchera has also been really successful in tracking family members and, and reporting on the fates of children. All these developments forced labor that otherwise wouldn't see the light of day. So people here, Congress is, they're very interested, you know, in our operations, but also very interested when a foreign government is trying to pressure us or stifle us. The reaction from China, I mean, it's kind of interesting because in a day and age when um, we talk a lot about high-tech surveillance and technology and internet filtering, all of which China does. Still, we see in China and other countries in Southeast Asia, there is this kind of old-school harassment, if not to our reporters directly, to their family members, friends, loved ones, and of course, their sources. Sure. We know China's goal is to silence these reporters and stifle the unflattering coverage of their policies in Xinjiang and other places. But how is that working out for China? It seems like there's getting more bad press or honest press. 2017 is when we first started reporting about the mass detentions, um, essentially breaking this, this story. 
But since then, you know, we have worked with other journalists, uh, Mega Rajagopalan at uh, BuzzFeed, uh, journalists from the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and the New York Times, and of course, the Washington Post, um, as well as BBC and others. And they have kind of covered this story closely, and it's widely reported now. But China still seems, seems to be continuing and trying to shoot the messenger. I see stories just recently how they've upped their game on digital platforms like Twitter and such to dispute claims about the Uyghur region, targeting, also harassing uh, researchers who are in Australia. These are all like continuing efforts to control the story or to at least like in, in their, their minds, you know, mitigate uh, the outcome. But yes, I don't think at this point it's, there's a plausible deniability that they could simply say uh, this isn't happening or not happening the way you see it. Indeed. And in fact, uh, the case of Guli that we're talking about right now came out of one of those Chinese efforts to dampen or deny the story by denigrating the people on the list. But they, they go to such absurd lengths to do it that it, it ends up backfiring on them. But the, it doesn't stop with RFA, of course. And you mentioned a, a laundry list or a who's who of some of the better uh, media outlets and reporters working in China. But now a lot of those reporters have either been kicked out or denied visas or any number of ways to, you know, that they can no longer work in China. Some of my favorite journalists and some of them are personal friends like Chris Buckley of the New York Times. So what does this mean for the world's understanding of China going forward? And what does it mean for RFA? More and more, it's kind of an interesting case because we have to, you know, rely on citizen journalists, which is something that, you know, Radio Free Asia does in a lot of closed countries, and particularly in the Uyghur region, where our reporters have had to develop networks of, of trust networks of, of sources and such who can provide information, verify information before we go out and break a story. I know that, you know, some of our journalists have given advice to uh, This American Life and other radio programs about how to use these techniques that they, they do. But our journalists also are, you know, they're, they're Uyghurs themselves. They know the region. Like Gulchera, they had a career, some of them had a career in, and as a journalist um, in those places, and they're trusted. And that gives them special access. They are able to make phone calls in the dead of night, like Shahet does, and able to extract information and able to talk to people and get people, more importantly, to talk to them. So that is something that unique is unique to Radio Free Asia and unique, you know, in, in, in what we do and makes it much more important as you see China um, close down, you know, and close these avenues for information. Sure, it's interesting. I mean, China has been striving to gain worldwide influence, it would seem, and they're gaining a lot of it, but they're also getting the sort of scrutiny and accountability that comes with it. And the world is learning better and better how China rolls. But China is not the only country to threaten, detain, or mistreat RFA reporters, and you alluded to that a little earlier in our conversation. Where else in the region have you had to deal with these kind of situations? And with World Press Freedom Day on the horizon, that's May 3rd, what can we all do to live up to the spirit of that day? It's fair to say that journalists and journalism is maligned, attacked everywhere, you know, in, in all parts of the world, you know, maybe not to the extent as, as it is in authoritarian countries where they, there's a definite effort to shut down and clamp down on, on voices that descend to that uh, portray or peel back the layers of, of the narrative that they are trying to push. But it's something that is, is a broader question. In our region, in Southeast Asia, for example, um, we've seen many cases that I've worked on as well with um, different services, particularly with our Cambodian, where we have two people who are former journalists here in Cambodia who still face charges 
related to their connection with RFA, they're being accused of spying. They've thrown in other charges. Authorities have thrown in other charges. They actually went through a trial and at the trial, at the end of the trial, the conclusion of which the judge said that there's not enough information or not enough evidence rather to uh, convict them, but rather than throwing out their case, you know, called for a reinvestigation. So this is like kind of an absurd sort of level of chronic uh, situations that we often have to face and we have to work you know, constructively with, of course, as you mentioned, the U.S. government, but a lot of the press freedom groups who really can kind of keep messaging this, especially with international um, organizations like the U.N., um, make sure that these cases, you know, the best thing that we can do sometimes is just bring a spotlight to these incidents. There's sometimes, you know, sadly, not a lot we can do uh, beyond just making sure that their cases are not forgotten. Indeed. And until recently, Arguably, the freest country that we were covering was Myanmar. And now, of course, they're under a military coup and journalists are literally under fire. What are your thoughts about uh, the peril that our RFA reporters are facing down in Myanmar these days? It's, it's really a, a troubling situation because we can't guarantee the safety of, of journalists who are willing to put their, their lives on the line and their safety on the line in the name of getting news that's reliable to their fellow countrymen. And, and, you know, by design, we, we feel very strongly about having people on the ground in the places that we can. This situation in, in Burma is, is unique. I think there was always sort of a sense of fragility with press freedom there. But at the same time, there was such rapid development in the last 10 years um, thing, since things began to open up in 2011. And mobile technology and the internet and, and business and all aspects of, of people's lives that information sharing was just considered kind of a, you know, uh, just a given. And so this is this is kind of a very worrisome situation. I was gonna say, if there's a bright light though, for the people, for our work and for our value, and this reflects in Burma, and earlier when we were talking about China, I was thinking about um, COVID and our reporting on, on Wuhan last year, where we were able to expose the underreporting of fatalities and infections that were breaking out in that region. People often are distrustful, you know, they grow distrustful of those state controlled avenues and channels that they'll turn to Radio Free Asia during those times. And we've seen that in Burma where we had this incredible uptick in our uh, social media video views and, and such. I think the first weekend was like 70 million on one day. Um, since the internet outages and telecom outages have started and power outages, uh, that's declined quite a bit. But it's still hovering around, you know, a million to five million daily, which is pretty incredible. And it shows that people want that information. They, they'll seek, they'll seek it, and they'll find ways. There is this want and desire for trustworthy, reliable information, especially during a time of crisis. Yes, in fact, and I noticed in my own work as the English editor, putting out the stories at the end of the day, that governments that have kicked us out still talk to us because, in a weird way, they know that we're trusted. And with that, I'll have to thank you, Rohit, for making time for me on a busy season and look forward to another chance to explore this or other issues again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Just about every country in the world has had its share of COVID-19 misery in the past year. In Cambodia, the economic costs have been felt keenly. The prolonged closure of borders due to the pandemic have pushed more people into poverty. The health impacts have been less acute, but that started to change in recent weeks. There's been a dangerous uptick in infection that could portend difficult days ahead 
for an under-equipped health system. There's also growing criticism of how the authoritarian government of Prime Minister Hun Sen is resorting to repressive measures to control people in the name of stopping the spread of the coronavirus. Joining me to discuss the situation is RFA Khmer's Vuti Huat. Welcome, Vuti. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very good, and I should wish you a happy Khmer New Year. Thank you very much. You're impressed? I tried very hard, but um, maybe next you... year I'll be better. <laughs> you did well, Matt. Thank you. Okay, so, Vuti, Cambodia, as I alluded to in the introduction, was largely unscathed by COVID in 2020, but it's experiencing a spike in infections now. So what is the current situation of the pandemic in the country? Uh, you are right, Matt. Before February uh, 20th this year, in Cambodia, there were just 484 cases for the entire 2020 and almost the first two months of uh, 2021. And there were no deaths from uh, COVID-19. For less than two months since then, confirmed cases have increased by more than tenfold. As of today, Matt, there are 5,218 confirmed cases and at least 37 deaths. I should also mention here that nearly all confirmed cases involve the UK variant of the disease. You might wonder how this could happen. Well, this uh, latest outbreak, known locally as the uh, February 20th community event, has been traced to two young Chinese women who had been in quarantine in a Phnom Penh hotel, but uh, they managed to conspire with the hotel security guard to let them out so they could go partying in Phnom Penh nightclubs. Do you know what's happened to those Chinese ladies after they broke curfew? Prime Minister Hun Sen say afterward that he need to have a law in order to prosecute those who breach the quarantine uh, rules. But so far, we do not know anything about the two Chinese uh, women. Okay. So Cambodia is facing this spike with this UK variant, which I think spreads faster than the other variants of the virus. Now, Hun Sen has faced some criticism from human rights groups and the UN over measures it's taken to contain COVID, like punishments for people who hold gatherings or, or people who say negative things about vaccination. Can you tell us a little bit about the government restrictions and, and how they're being enforced? Uh, Matt uh, asked you, uh, uh, you know, repression is uh, a business as usual for Mr. Hun Sen. He always finds excuse to uh, put more control and control, especially on those who do not agree with his style of leadership. And he always says he does this all in the name of peace, protecting the people and the law. He, in fact, has prepared for this since uh, last April when he hurriedly drafted and passed a state of emergency law, giving the government sweeping powers to curtail fundamental freedoms and rights. Then just uh, last month, Matt, Cambodia adopted a new law called Law on Measure to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and other serious, dangerous and contagious diseases. 
The law empowers the government to impose restrictions to curb the spread of infectious disease, uh, but also uh, contains strict sentences of up to 20 years for those who breach quarantine rules. The law also grants uh, the government power to ban, restrict, and any gathering uh, or demonstration. Human rights experts express serious concern over this new law. They say this law that allows harsh measures such as 20-year prison term for breaching quarantine rules appears to be disproportionate and unwarranted. As for Prime Minister Hun San, he doesn't seem to care much about this uh, criticism. He announced on a national TV that he accepts being called a dictator, but he will be admired for protecting people's life. Okay, it certainly seems true to form to Hun Sen. He doesn't seem to care much about international opinion these days. So do we know how many people have been arrested or charged because of COVID violations and, and violating this, this new law on preventing the spread of COVID and other infectious diseases? Yes, Matt. Up to today, the uh, local human rights group have documented some uh, 35 arrests and charges because of uh, COVID violations. Wow, that's pretty steep. And it seems like there could be prospect for, for more punishments because Phnom Penh is, being, is in lockdown right now. Yes, Phnom Penh has been locked down until uh, the end of this month, uh, as you just say uh, at the beginning of our show, that this traditional Khmer New Year's and uh, people tend to get out of the Phnom Penh and come into Phnom Penh from different provinces. So the government uh, started this lockdown until the end of this month. Okay. So let's turn to the question of vaccinations. What, what is the government doing to vaccinate the population and, and how is that going? The government says about 1 million Cambodians have been vaccinated against the disease out of a, a population of 16 million since February 10. And the government intend to inoculate up to 10 million of its citizens. Currently, eligible Cambodian can receive either one of the two vaccines the AstraZeneca uh, donated to Cambodia uh, as part of the UN COVAX initiative and the Chinese-made Sinopharm Sinovac. The vaccination process has not uh, gone well, Matt. Uh, as you know, the uh, Chinese Sinopharm or Sinovac have not been approved by uh, WHO and the reports of severe reaction from the AstraZeneca have made some uh, people very reluctant to get the vaccines. Uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen has to resort again to threatening people to get uh, vaccinated. He even staged a live TV event showing members of his own family getting the Chinese-made Sinopharm or Sinovac to gain trust from the, uh, from the people, Matt. I saw that Hun Sen had been warning civil servants that they could lose their jobs if they refused to get the Sinopharm or the Sinovac vaccines, the Chinese vaccines. So what's been the reaction to that? Hun Sen, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he, he always uh, warned people, always put more control on the people. On Tuesday of last week, Prime Minister Hun Sen warned that any civil servants who refuse the Sinopharm or Sinovac vaccine will be fired. He ordered authority to record names of those who refuse the Chinese vaccine, saying that they risk infecting others. He also said that those who choose not to get the vaccine will be prevented from going to work. 
and people uh, react uh, differently to this latest warning uh, from Prime Minister Hun Sen. Out of fear of losing their job, uh, some went ahead and got the vaccine. Some expressed that the government should ensure that the vaccination is voluntary and not that state forced uh, vaccinations. Okay. So what about Hun Sen himself? Has he been vaccinated and what vaccine did he get? Oh, he did get vaccinated. And as you might have guessed, uh, Mr. Hun Sen preferred the Western-made vaccine. Both he and his wife got the AstraZeneca. Okay, that does seem a little bit hypocritical, but uh, anyway, each to their own. I saw that the exiled opposition figure, Sam Ranzi, who's the uh, acting chief of the CNRP party, recently called on people to take the Chinese vaccine. Was that a change in position for him? And how did Hun Sen react to that? It's not really a change uh, in position from Mr. Sam Ranzi. Even if Mr. Sam Ranzi did raise issues of lower efficacy of the Chinese-made vaccines, he never really asked Cambodian not to get this vaccine. In an interview with RFA Khmer Service on April 13, Mr. Renzi said, that, uh, said the reasoning as to why he now is calling on the people to take the Chinese vaccine is because he has seen a rise in infected cases and deaths and that the Cambodian government has no means to get any other vaccine beside the Chinese one. Therefore, he's appealing to the Cambodian people to take the only available vaccine to protect themselves in spite of its uh, lower efficacy. Hun Sen, uh, of course, does not take this as a compliment. He accused Sam Rangsi for creating a rush for the vaccine among the people, while the Cambodian did not have enough for every citizen. Hun Sen said the call from Mr. Sam Rangsi for people to get the Chinese vaccines is not from good intention. He says that the goal of Mr. Sam Rangsi is to create competition for the vaccine when Cambodia does not have enough. Okay, so it doesn't sound like Hun Sen's in a very conciliatory mood, despite the fact that it's Khmer New Year. Buti, thank you so much for your help in describing the situation in Cambodia and COVID-19. We dearly hope that the situation doesn't get worse. Thanks again, Buti. We hope so too, Mark. Thank you very much and always happy to talk with you. See you next time. Thanks, Buti and Matt, for that look at COVID in Cambodia. It's worrying to see that the coronavirus is spiking in mainland Southeast Asia at a time when in the US and the UK, where I am, it seems to be subsiding. Yeah, that's right. I see that Thailand is also grappling with an upsurge in cases, and that's in turn spooking Laos as well. But what's happening in Myanmar right now with COVID is anyone's guess. Indeed, coronavirus has the potential to take many more lives than the 720 or so victims so far of Myanmar's brutal military junta, not least because the authorities now seem bent on arresting doctors and other medical professionals and they're not even reporting about COVID cases, or even if they are, it's on a very limited basis. Anyway, please join us again next week. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts can be found on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. 
This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Red Every Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.